Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a two-part show this morning. First, a discussion about how to make sure independent researchers have access to data from technology platforms. And second, a book talk with the author of How Algorithms Create and Prevent Fake News, exploring the impacts of social media, GPT-3, and more. We must not leave the black box of social media disinformation unexamined. Navigating the difficulties and extending access to data will not be easy, but failing to do so will have devastating consequences. Now, we often talk about media literacy being an important part of online safety, but for that to work, users need to understand what they're keeping themselves safe from and how they do it. And it's hard to do that when um, the thing that is directing harmful content at you is something you can't see and you have no control over, which is you know, the recommendation tools that drive uh, the recommend the, the data that drives the recommendation tools and the data that drives online advertising. You just heard snippets of the opening statements in testimony in the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology from Eddie Bernice Johnson, a Democrat from Texas, and from a hearing of the UK Parliament Joint Committee on the Draft Online Safety Bill, chaired by MP Damian Collins. In the wake of the revelations brought forward by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, there is a great deal of focus among lawmakers and regulators in many capitals to figure out how to see inside the platforms. Last week, Nathaniel Persily, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and director of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, put forward a draft of potential legislation announcing what he calls the Platform Transparency and Accountability Act in a Washington Post column. I took the opportunity of the column to invite Nate and two other experts on this subject, Rebecca Trombel and Brandy Nanicki, to talk about how best to get researchers access to the vast droves of data the platforms hold on us. I'll let my guests introduce themselves, and we'll get straight into the discussion. I'm Rebecca Trombel, uh, Director of the Institute for Data Democracy and Politics and Associate Professor at George Washington University. Hi, I'm Brandy Nanaki. I'm the Director of the Citrus Policy Lab, headquartered at UC Berkeley, where we support interdisciplinary tech policy research and engagement, and I'm a fellow at the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Nate Persley, I'm a law professor at Stanford and co-director of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. I'm so excited to have the three of you here today to talk about this issue of platform transparency and uh, how to share data appropriately in a way that can hopefully help society understand what's going on in these big social media platforms and what are the right things to do about it. Um, Nate, I was kind of impressed at the timing of this op-ed that you had in the Washington Post, which happened to appear on the same day that Francis Haugen was testifying to the Senate, bringing forward these, uh, you know, extraordinary documents that she brought forward from, from Facebook. But you've been working on this issue for a long time. Why is, why is this issue of data transparency, platform transparency to you uh, so important? Well, I think it's uh, important to start off by emphasizing that the idea of independent researcher access to platform data is not about 
providing a luxury good to academics, right? It's not just about academics being able to publish on this. It's about providing a check on the platforms so that they know that they're being watched, as well as uh, providing an opportunity to develop, you know, um, the science on what's happening in these platforms that can help inform policymakers uh, going forward. Uh, and so, you know, I have been working on this uh, as have both uh, Brandy and Rebecca uh, for some time, um, but it is through frustrations with dealing with the platforms themselves and repeatedly banging my head against the wall with them that I thought that you know, legislation is really the way forward. And so I think the platforms need to be compelled in a safe privacy protected way to share data with outside independent academics uh, in order so that we can get a window on the tech. We, we shouldn't have to wait for whistleblowers to blow their whistles for us to get uh, an idea of what's happening inside these companies. And Rebecca, you've been working on this issue too, uh, both here in the United States, but also with counterparts in the EU. That's right. Um, I've been working on this issue um, for a few years now. Before I joined George Washington University a couple of years ago, um, I was a professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Um, and I think we all know that at this point, um, European regulators are at least two steps ahead um, of where we are here in the United States. And I've been working very carefully uh, with policymakers across Europe and particularly in Brussels to try and develop precisely what Nate was talking about, a, a, a regulatory environment where we achieve platform accountability. And one piece of that is by um, permitting and enabling independent researchers to have access to data that's been sitting behind these walled gardens that the platforms have been collecting um, at incredible, incredible speeds, incredible volumes for each and every one of its users, um, and yet has only been accessible by the platforms themselves. And as we saw last week with Francis Haugen's incredible testimony, is being researched is, is being used to understand what the impacts are on the platforms, but then ultimately that research is not being released to the public. Um, and so it's really time for independent researchers to be able to share with the public at large and to share with policymakers to inform their choices um, going forward and how we hold these platforms accountable. And Brandy, I know you've also advocated for exactly this. You've had proposals around the idea of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, taking the lead to kind of set some uh, goals around this issue? Actually, I want to go back a little bit a few years ago to 2019. And it's great that we have Nate personally here, because at that time, I was very excited about a collaboration called Social Science One. And wow, Facebook was going to give this trove of data to researchers to better understand how the platform may have had an impact on the election. And in, I think it was around July, August, 2019, maybe a little later, uh, a report came out, I think it was in BuzzFeed News that said, oh, guess what? Facebook's not sharing the data. And to me, that was quite shocking because they had had this collaboration in place, but the data wasn't going to be shared. And then also around that time, GDPR really went into effect. And you started to, started to see the platform say, you know, we're uncomfortable sharing data at this point because we're unsure whether or not we have all of the correct privacy protections in place. And I got really fired up about this because I agree that we need to have data privacy and security, 
But I had this fear that maybe platforms could use data privacy legislation as a shield to protect themselves against sharing data that would promote the transparency and accountability that we so need. And also, you know, member, you know, the, the leadership of these companies, the platforms, the CEOs kept testifying before Congress around this time, and they kept saying the word transparency. And so I did a little command F function on their testimonies to see how many times does the word transparency appear in their testimonies. Unsurprisingly, it appears dozens of times in each of their testimonies, all the while they're becoming more and more restrictive on the data they're sharing. And so in response to that, it, you know, you see the work of Rebecca and, and Nate really trying to push forward appropriate processes where we can gain access to data in a way that's privacy preserving, but of high value for scientific research. And there's some legislation proposed in the EU and the US that are going to address this. But I think that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. So I'm excited to talk both with Nate and Rebecca today to talk about, well, what is working in the legislation and where does it need a little bit more work to make sure that we're heading down the right path? Well, Nate, maybe that is a good thing to do, though, is maybe get social science one slightly on the table. Because you mentioned that, you know, in your uh, piece that this is slightly born of your frustration uh, in that moment and, you know, what went wrong with social science one, which, by the way, we should point out, you know, just a what a few weeks ago now we, we found out that there was a, a sort of serious error in the data set that was provided to researchers through social science one that I, I assume has a number of, uh, you know, PhD dissertations kind of back to the drawing board, unfortunately. What, what can you tell us about that experience? Well, one thing I've, I've got good news to report, which is at least this week, they've now corrected the data. Uh, but that's, you know, as they, as is familiar in our um, parlance as putting lipstick on a pig, right? So, so I think uh, um, I've often described social science one as kind of roadkill on the highway to something magnificent, right? Which is that you, we need it to go through some of these experiences to understand what the barriers to platform data sharing are. Uh, there's certainly a long sorted history uh, with, with social science one, but the, the basic problem is as Brandy described it, right? Which is that Facebook made, made grand promises at the beginning that, we, that outside researchers would have access to a significant amount of data to you know, do their research. And very quickly after it was announced in you know, 2018 or 2017, among other things, a privacy group sent a letter to the European Commission, the Federal Tra uh, Trade Commission, sort of cease and desist that, that the very existence of Social Science One was a, a uh, infringement on privacy. I think there's, there's something to what Brandy was saying about Facebook, you know, the, the privacy concerns, you know, that Facebook taking these privacy concerns and using them as a shield to not sh uh, share data. But it was in the middle of all this that they ended up also paying a $5 billion fine because of what happened after Cambridge Analytica. So the privacy issues had kind of, right out of the gate, we were kind of hobbled. And so then the social science, the main data set that, that was released through Social Science One, which was a large, I mean, ginormous, uh, you know, data set of links. Uh, it was not individual level data, right? It was data about uh, links that were shared on Facebook over the previous two or three years. That had, not only is that data aggregated at the link level as opposed to individual level, but it is also, there's differential privacy that has been injected into the data, meaning that they've added noise to the data, which makes it very difficult to analyze, uh, as well as restricts the kind of inferences that a lot of social scientists would like to make. Now, 
there have been over you know close to 100 researchers who've had access to this data. There are you know some papers that have been published, unfortunately, as you said, with some of the erroneous uh, data, and there are people who are using it. But it is far away from what we were promised originally and what we anticipated when we started Social Science One. And so you know, so so that's where the the idea of government intervention, either you know, in the EU, in the US, comes in, which is that. I've been convinced that um, only if you have uh, federal compulsion to um, make the platforms release data in an independent, secure, privacy-protected way to, to researchers, will it actually happen? Because we've now been spending years trying to uh, get this out of the company. And frankly, you know, as, as difficult as this experience has been, you know, it's not like you've seen YouTube doing anything comparable to it, right? You know, and, and the other platforms um, are not exactly stepping up. So. We, we need some kind of, you know, federal agency uh, enforcement uh, to force some transparency on the platform. Let's dive in a little bit into your proposal and maybe kind of hit a couple of points on it. And I think maybe one way I might like to do this is to ask Brandy and Rebecca a couple of things that they like about it before we then maybe turn to a couple of things they might do differently. So I don't know who would like to start, but Brandy, would you be willing to to take that? Sure, sure. Pitch? I'll take a, a, a first pass. Yeah, there, there's a lot that I love about it. I think most of the legislation that's been proposed to date has really narrowly defined the type of data that should be made available. And I think, you know, we could end up in a place where we don't want to be when we have sort of piecemeal legislation that says, okay, platform, you have to compel data to be made available in X area. And so one thing I do like, Nate, about your your proposed legislation is this broader scope. And it's the first I've seen that's really doing that in the U.S. Um, so I think that that's a really great step. There, there are a few things that I've already expressed to Nate that I think should be added in, um, but I'll hold off on those and pass it over to Rebecca. So I would say that that I really appreciate how thorough Nate has been in approaching this from a number of different angles. This is an area where there are a number of competing interests and many people, right, who are going to to want to jump in um, and they should absolutely, you know, ultimately have their say, you know, should, should Nate's proposed legislation be taken up, it will go through a natural process of, of debate and markup and so on. Um, and, you know, this is the very democratic process. One of the things that that I like most about this proposal is that it combines a sort of traditional understanding of data access as in the platforms provide access to researchers directly with the notion of a, a sort of safety mechanism put in place, an exemption put in place for researchers to do their own work without coming in conflict with the platform's um, terms of service. So this gives us sort of two angles in that I think are of both of incredible value. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that, that Nate has incorporated both uh, in his proposal. Thank you. Uh, let me say, and, and thank you especially for that, that that latter proposal has not received the, the kind of attention. It, it's worth, at least for us, to put on the table the controversy of, well, the, the real reprehensible, I think, behavior of, of Facebook in kicking off 
the NYU researchers who had a had a uh, plugin that they had um, you know made available for research purposes about the ad for the ad observatory. While there's there's a lot else that's going on in the in the world of statutory law um, with respect to scraping, that is a part of this legislation, which is to immunize researchers who are trying to to scrape data on the outside of publicly available data. And so that's that's something that we, I mean, even if there are other proposals like um, some other organizations that we're all affiliated with that, that have made some of these scraping uh, proposals as well. And so even if that were passed independently, that could do some work uh, to help researchers. Nate, just quickly, can you give people, there's, I feel like there's sort of, two big pieces of this. There's the idea of the uh, immunity or the uh, safe harbor. And then there's this sort of like mechanism this sets up, including the, you know, the advisory and and the board and the rest of that. Um, Can you just give people a sort of sense of the basics of what's in this, what you're proposing? Well, this takes a typically administrative law model of uh, trying to, you know, craft regulations to provide for researcher access. Um, the, let me be self-critical for a second, which is to say, the, the, look, the hardest part here is to figure out how much you want to specify in legislation versus how much authority you want to give to an agency to do some of the hard work here. Um, particularly when it comes to you know, research on tech platforms, you have to project out into the future um, what might be the new products, new ways that um, these firms may be operating, and then to empower an agency to craft regulations to deal with research in those new contexts. And so there are certain, in working with the lawyers and and certain privacy folks that I talked to in in setting this up, as well as others uh, who've given a comment, we're borrowing from other areas of federal statutory law to to try to uh, create sort of logical shortcuts here. Um, but that, that's the hardest part, right, is to try to figure out how much to specify with respect to, for example, penalties on researchers for malfeasance or um, the specific types of security protocols and privacy protections that need to be there. And uh, as, as Rebecca was saying, like a lot of that would be wonderful if that, that could be done in markup of, of a bill. And I don't want to take, look, there are plenty of other proposals out there. And I, I, I sort of don't want to focus just on mine, though it's out there. So I'm happy to, to talk about it. You know, th- that's where the compromise is going to come in, how, how much to specify, as well as whether something like this is dealt with on its own, or as I might even prefer that we'd be part of, you know, federal privacy legislation. So, so there's, there's a lot of work that, that will be done in this. The basics of it are that it vests the FTC with the authority to compel the platforms defined in a particular way to provide for access by independent researchers as determined by the FTC working with the National Science Foundation to develop protocols for vetting for applications for for researcher access, as well as vetting of the researchers, approval of the facilities and approval of the procedures for, um, for independent access. The FTC will then specify, you know, the, all of the sort of inner workings of these clean rooms or whatever we want to call them, these secure portals uh, that will be at the firms. What one interest, one question was always, you know, whether the data should, where should the data reside, right? And in talking to privacy and government surveillance folks, they were, you know, adamantly against the idea that the data would be transferred to the researchers or transferred to a government facility more important that it would be it would stay at the firm and that the researchers go there. And then um, 
because privacy is is the 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 key thing that we have to solve for here, it would uh, you know prevent you know there are all kinds of protections that the FTC, some in the statute, some that the FTC have to create um, that would prevent against uh, leakage. Uh, so you need review of publications uh, and the like in order to prevent that. Uh, and then there's the separate part that we were discussing before, which immunizes researchers even apart from this. The, the, the secure access side of things that would immunize researchers who want to, uh, you know, do scraping uh, of publicly available data. And so those are sort of the two big parts of it. So Rebecca, maybe we'll come back around to you then on, on this um, and also maybe bringing in the perspective of what's going on in Europe. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, so what we're seeing in Europe right now is a two pronged, actually really more accurately, probably a three pronged approach to tackling the, the questions of data access. There, there are a couple of pieces of draft legislation where uh, data access is articulated. Probably the most important, the most significant of those is the draft of the Digital Services Act, um, which has a specific clause uh, which calls for the ability um, of certain actors within the European Union, certain regulatory actors to compel uh, access for quote unquote vetted researchers. Um, and the DSA in its draft form um, limits that to academic researchers. Uh, however, there's been quite a bit of debate over that in the European Parliament, and we actually expect that that's going to be expanded beyond just academic researchers, that it will be vetted um, more broadly understood. Another really important piece of the sort of regulatory framework um, we find in the uh, imagined at this point, it's not even yet in draft form, um, but the, the updated version of the European Union's code of practice on disinformation. Um, up to now, it has only been in a voluntary form, um, and the European Union last year announced its intention to move this into a sort of 2.0 co-regulatory version um, with data access being a core prong of the legislation, of the larger framework. Then the, the third piece of this, really, I think, an absolutely essential component when we think about whether we're doing this in the United States through legislation or, or in Europe through legislation is ultimately developing the details of how this would work in practice. And I think setting up the appropriate body and the appropriate mechanism for doing that is really, really important. So in Europe, I'm currently chairing a working group that was established by the European Digital Media Observer Observatory which has brought together stakeholders from civil society, from academia, and representatives of the platforms themselves. And we're beginning to hash out a code of conduct specifically under Article 40 of the GDPR that lays out the specific, you know, more or less logistics and protocols for enabling privacy protecting responsible data access for researchers. And, and I can tell you after having you know, been, been in the middle of working on this for months now, um, that it is a very, very challenging process. And you have to have all the right people at the table talking through these things because um, you know, the devil really is in the details and there are legal matters that have to be taken up. There are technical matters that have to be taken up. There are ethical principles that have to be brought to the heart of it. But, you know, to date, we're making incredible progress with this working group. And I think whatever legislation might pass in the U.S., 
Um, it has to have an understanding of this particular devil in the details process at the absolute heart of it, or it simply won't be functional. I couldn't agree with you more, Rebecca. It's hard, right? Moving past a broad concept to actually implementing how this thing is actually going to work in practice. And there are two issues I want to bring up that I think are common across pieces of legislation that I've seen. One is around a scoping issue and one is around reporting. And around scoping, we've all mentioned most of these pieces of legislation target vetted academic researchers. And I'm really happy to hear that the EU is sort of pushing back against this, because if we think about where, who has been at the vanguard of revealing what's happening on platforms, a lot of it's been from investigative journalists. So I fear that if we have legislation that will only support data access for vetted academic researchers, Will we inadvertently block these you know, extremely important investigative journalists from being able to access data? Another issue around scoping is, you know, we're kind of conflating. We keep saying data access for research. Well, some of the legislation, like when I read the DSA, the Digital Services Act, it's research in the spirit of supporting compliance to relevant laws and regulations. There's also the idea that we should provide researchers access to this data for just pure scientific research purposes. So I think those are two different things and we need to be very conscientious of how we scope out the legislation to make sure we're clear on what we're trying to support. And then another issue is around reporting uh, about the data itself. At the beginning of our discussion today, Justin brought up that, look, it was revealed that the data shared with Social Science One was flawed. And now hopefully it's corrected, but I think in order for that research to be of high value, uh, I'm sorry, that data to be of high value for scientific research, it needs to also be delivered to researchers in a way that tells them how is the data collected? How is the data cleaned? How has the data been manipulated? All of this is very important for it to be, you know, to maintain that high value. And then just one other thing around the scoping issue. Of course, I'm a researcher. I'm an academic. Give me all the data. I want all the data. I want to do all the research. But if I think about the legislation that says that academics are essentially performing a watchdog role for government, I have a little bit of hesitation there. Because does that role actually align with the incentive structure of academia? Are our tenure track faculty members you know, are they able to perform the role of, of doing research for compliance purposes, or do they want to ask very innovative, cutting edge, let's move the science, research questions, and then use that data to be able to investigate it? And so I just want to bring up that tension again. Uh, so I, th- all, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, let, me, let me talk about the, the scoping issue with respect to journalists versus academic researchers. And this is, this is a hard one. And if I could figure out a way to solve that problem, given the polarization that we have over what over journalism and media today, then, then I'd be thrilled if I can solve. I, I can't solve that. And so and, and right now, and this, by the way, in talking to different Senate offices, this is something that that there is even a concern that that in the vetting of academics, that it'll be only liberal academics who would get through or something like that. But, but, but this was something we dealt with with Social Science One as well, um, and let me put it out there. But I don't have any objection to, you know, whether it's think tanks or, or journalists and the like, to have a similar or the same process. But, but here's my experience, which is that 
you can define what a university is, right? And universities have certain institutions like IRBs. Yes, there are IRBs that exist outside of universities, but generally speaking, you know, you, you, you know, that's one of the things that distinguishes uh, universities from journalistic or think tank institutions. You can nest the relationships, the legal relationships of the researchers with the platforms and the data in a larger context in terms of their relationship to the university. Right. And so the idea is that you, you would want to get all of those parties involved in promising to protect privacy and like that was something I'll say one of the accomplishments of social science one was the development over many months, a negotiated research data agreement with university lawyers that took forever with Facebook. But now it is a template that can be used and rolled out in other uh, contexts. While it is true, there are things like University of Phoenix and Prager University and kind of false universities, um, it is, I think, much easier to define universe as to what a, a professor is and what an, you know, a university researcher is and what a university is, as opposed to what a journalist is, right, or what a think tank is. And so the question is, if you, you know, can you develop a system that will be credible from all sides if you, you know, develop a system that says the New York Times and Wall Street Journal get access, but Breitbart doesn't, or the, you know, future, the Pew Institute or Brookings gets access, but Heritage does not, or, or pick, you know, made up think tank, right? And so that's, that's the, the reason that for now, at least my proposal is uh, just about university researchers, but, you know, I'm open to, I mean, it's like whatever, whatever can, can be done here, I think is important. I think the points that Brandy was making um, are incredibly important here, both in terms of scoping and in terms of um, what, you know, I refer to as data pipeline audits. Um, I'm actually working on a paper right now that I hope to have out in uh, working draft form by the end of the year that really tries to spell out um, what type of audit mechanisms we need in order to support this form of transparency via data access. Because truth be told, when we think about you know, audits, whether it's from an, uh, a, a sort of traditional policy um, context or even an algorithmic audit context, um, there are some levels of complexity that are added beyond those visions when we're talking about data access, because we really need to understand things about where the data came from, what data were available, what's the entire universe, right, of data that would have been available so that we can understand what is applicable to the types of questions that we would be investigating. Um, we need to be able to understand how those data have been transformed, whether they've been transformed properly. When we look at the, the problem that just cropped, we learned just, we just learned cropped up, it was it baked into the data um, from the very beginning with the Social Science One uh, URLs data set. It was really about the way that the data were transformed. Um, and so we need code review, but we also need steps like the ability to create synthetic data sets um, that are then effectively injected into the pipeline that we know as the independent researchers what the results would be on the basis of that synthetic data. Um, and we can test whether or not the results are actually accurate because ultimately we won't have a, a level of trust either from the researchers, a level of certainty from the researchers, the policymakers, or the public that what we're looking at is reliable, particularly if that data right, stay within the platform systems the entire time. So this is where I, you know, when I get back to what I was saying earlier about 
the devil being in the details. This truly is a complex process. And I think we're doing a good job of having the conversation um, about the sort of higher level questions here. Um, but there are so many important detailed questions that have to be worked out with the appropriate stakeholders in discussion with one another. I just want to dive into one particular thing that you've all brought up, and I, I really appreciate Brandy's distinction between compliance versus science, you know, uh, as, a, as a motivation. How can industry capture all of this? Nate's got this idea in his, his uh, proposal of a, of a council. Um, I don't know what the sort of symmetry is in that council between industry representatives or folks on the research side per se. I don't know exactly how things might work, Rebecca, in the EU proposal. How, how can industry sort of bend this all to its will? Uh, or is that a concern that we should have? We got to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, and, and, and uh, you know, the whole idea here is that, and one of the reasons to put it in the, in the, the reason that the legislation I propose puts it in the, in the hands of the FTC is I don't think Lena Khan, if she, if she ends up getting a hold of this, it's, it's not going to become an industry captured uh, effort, right? Uh, and so I, I and, and, and the, the whole vetting of researchers uh, and the like, is not you know, within the platform's authority. I mean, that was one of the key things, again, with Social Science One was that the whole idea was that some independent body outside the firm would be the one that vets the, um, that decides which researchers get access. So yeah, I don't, I don't think industry capture, look, I, I, I suppose there's always a risk of, I mean, the, the question is if you start thinking about other administrations and how they might use this, and I, I, I suppose there's some concern about enforcement later on. That's true with almost anything with respect to administrative law, but we need to have, you know, a, a strong authority that will compel the platforms to do what's proposed here. So I actually do worry about this from a couple of different angles. One is the straightforward um, regulatory capture angle, because Nate, as you were just suggesting, um, Lena Khan isn't going to be at the FTC forever. Yeah. Second is really about where the expertise for getting into and solving those detailed problems lies. I have been, uh, Nate, you have had some involvement in the uh, Facebook 2020 um, election research project where a number of independent academics have been working side by side with researchers inside the company. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from that project, which has been to date, I think, quite successful, is that we as external uh, researchers have very little understanding of the way the companies function internally, what data is actually available, and what it would take in order to make data access work. Now, I don't say that to suggest that we should not dive into this. I very clearly wholeheartedly believe that we need to tackle this. But the truth is that the, you know, the detailed level of expertise that we need to make this function properly is housed within the companies themselves. And I think that that is a precise mechanism that they could use to throw up roadblocks um, for this whole thing. So there, I think we have to do, um, at the very least, a very careful survey of the, the sort of broader landscape and look for those experts who were once inside the companies and are now independent experts and can really help guide us through understanding the best processes and procedures for making data access and ultimately platform accountability functional. Brandy, where do you think this line should be for companies? Look, I think that the companies realize, I mean, they realize legislation is coming and 
and Facebook is openly calling for a change in legislation, right? I don't know if they're doing that with the best intentions, but look, I think for the companies, there's an incentive for them to work on these projects and to be more open because at the end of the day, do they really want legislation that's been informed by research that only sees one side of an issue is not really seeing what's happening in the company. And then all of a sudden now there's a law regulation that they have to follow that completely misses the mark. So I think now, now's the time for the companies to step up even more the platforms and to work with uh, the multi-stakeholder groups. Like Rebecca said, it's not just academics working with them or lawmakers, but it has to be this multi-stakeholder approach where they're working together to solve this issue. And I think at the end of the day, it benefits both the platforms and the broader public. Just to be clear that the motivation for the legislation is not is not simply about uh, providing a service to policymakers. I just want to, you know, the, the, the scientific enterprise is, is what undergirds this, right? And so, and that's why it's as broad in scope as possible. So, it, you know, it, inc- it should include um, research, research on teenager self-harm, just as it should be election disinformation and election, you know, manipulation and like, or COVID disinformation. So, so I think, and that's why I think it's important to get the NSF involved uh, in this. Um, it shouldn't just be policy relevant questions. I mean, because because part of the point here is it's it's not even just about investigating what the platforms are doing or what social media, the effect of social media on X dependent variable, or I should say Y dependent variable. It's also about recognizing that this is now the data for social science, right? Which is that this is where it exists. And so we need to make sure that it's available to to study all kinds of problems uh, that social scientists and not just social scientists, but, you know, medical professionals, uh, others are interested in. Yeah. And I just want to add that. Yeah, I totally agree. And your legislation, your proposed legislation definitely has that broader scope. But we still have this issue of some of the legislation, the science versus compliance framing that I think needs to be taken into consideration. I know we've only got a minute left and I want to kind of wrap this up and maybe just with that broader perspective of where you hope we are in a couple of three years, five years, 10 years with this. You know, reading through the documents that that uh, were footnoted in the SEC disclosures from Francis Haugen, I mean, the titles of those documents, the types of studies going on inside of Facebook. I mean, you know, I think people are right to be extremely concerned about the locus of social science research being inside a private company with this vast data set. I mean, you know, you could be right to kind of look at that set of research studies and say, this is social engineering on a vast scale. I don't know, where, where are we going to get to in, in three or five years with this? It's a good question. It's just who <laughs> who wades into it first. And I guess by chiming in, that means I will. <laughs> um, in three to five years, I hope that we have not just in Europe, not just in the United States, um, but around the world, we have mechanisms for independent researchers understood very broadly, not just academic researchers, but journalists um, and researchers embedded within civil society organizations to really unpack and hold um, the platforms accountable for any harms that they're having on society. But I'll add to that, that I think we also need a better understanding of the benefits that the platforms have to our societies, because it's not just a matter of going in and finding out what's wrong and and trying to mitigate for those harms. 
but it's also ultimately about finding out what the benefits are and how to actually amplify those benefits. The other thing that I'll add to this that, that I think adds another level um, or layer of nuance is to say that I hope that the that external research communities, independent researchers will have the ability to understand what we think of as differential impacts of the platforms to not just think of the harms that happen to people society wide, but to understand how different groups and subgroups of people are impacted by the platforms in different ways. If we get to a point where independent researchers can study these absolutely essential questions without being thwarted by the tremendous power and influence of the platforms themselves, I think we'll be in much better shape going forward to understand what we can do with the platforms and how people can benefit from them long term. I just have one thing I'd like to add to what Rebecca said, and you have hit every point. The one thing that I would add is around making sure that the research and the insights, whether it's research for science or for compliance, is shared with end users in a way that allows them and empowers them to make greater decisions over their online lives. I guess that distinction probably doesn't make sense anymore, but the role of platforms in their lives, a lot more power for them. I'll just say one thing, which is that we kind of need to study the platforms uh, before they move toward a system of encryption and privacy where we might not be able to study them. So if if Zuckerberg has his way and ties up Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook in a future sort of privacy cocoon that, that had been announced a few years ago, um, it may become increasingly difficult for us to study what's happening uh, at some of these big firms. And so we need to kind of, as we, as we project into the future, I mean, the time is now for us to really set up these institutions to make sure that we can uh, study these problems. Well, and certainly, uh, you know, you mentioned also just the technologies moving on and Facebook's own ambitions towards virtual and augmented reality and neural interfaces and the rest of that. I mean, those types of data sets, who, who even knows what, what, what social scientists will do with. So it's kind of an extraordinary thing to think about. Well, listen, the three of you, I, I'm very grateful to you for, for uh, having this conversation. And, and Nate, thanks for putting that idea forward in, in the Washington Post. And um, I hope that we'll see some movement on this. It seems like it needs to happen primarily, maybe even before other forms of legislation, so we don't make mistakes. I hope we'll have this conversation again soon. Thanks, Thanks. Justin. Yeah, thank you, Justin. And thanks, thanks to Nate and Brandy. See you later. Bye-bye. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Noah John Syracusa is a mathematician and data scientist who is assistant professor at Bentley University near Boston. Most of his papers are on things like algebraic geometry or machine learning. But recently, he wrote a book that looks at 
How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Understanding of the World on Social Media. The book is called How Algorithms Create and Prevent Fake News, Exploring the Impacts of Social Media, Deepfakes, GPT-3, and More. I spoke to Noah about the challenges of our algorithmically driven information environment and whether AI might help us fix it. All right, I'm Noah John Syracusa. I'm an assistant professor of mathematical sciences at Bentley University, just outside of Boston. And Noah, you are the author of this new book, How Algorithms Create and Prevent Fake News, Exploring the Impacts of Social Media, Deepfakes, GPT-3, and more. Who did you write this book for? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it grew out of a classroom experience. So it really was right when the pandemic was starting, I was teaching a course on data and society. And it was kind of an experimental course where we had free reign to just explore whatever curriculum we wanted. And we kept hearing all these things like the who was saying that this is an infodemic, which you know none of us had ever heard that phrase before, that we don't know what's true, what's not. And you know that, that's been around for a while, but it was really hammered home. So because the course had such this, a liberal platform, we could just take it where we wanted. And the students wanted to know what's, what's going on with information and misinformation. So we discussed these things and kind of read articles as they're coming up, you know, true ones and false ones. And just, and just kind of, we're trying to wrap our minds around what was going on. And it, I just found it so engaging and stimulating. Students said they would go home and, well, we got sent home because that was March 2020. But they said they would talk about this topics with their parents, with their siblings. And it just made me think, you know, a lot of people are going to be interested in this beyond just this classroom. And the, the kind of main impetus behind the book is that when most people hear these things about AI and algorithms and machine learning, it sounds very intimidating. But just to know the basics, like the nuts and bolts is not so complicated. I think anyone can kind of get behind it and grasp it. And just having a little bit more technical insight opens up a lot of doors into these discussions and lets a lot more people into the, the debates about where we're going and what we should do about it. So the book was just it came from the classroom, but it's aimed at helping bring more people into this discussion that we're having right now. And you, by background, are a mathematician. So how did you get on to these concerns about the public sphere and the information ecosystem? Yeah, it, indirectly, I would say I was a, not just mathematician, but pure mathematician, which means really just abstract theoretical stuff with no utility or you know, relevance to the world. I like it. I, I did before and I still do. But I've always had a little hunger to kind of find some way of using my quantitative background to things that are a little more relevant to the world and to society. And I started by exploring some data science that draws heavily from mathematics, something called topological data analysis. And it still left me a little bit feeling like, okay, that's kind of cool. But, you know, there's a lot of news happening every day that's important. And I feel like I'm close enough to it that I should be involved, but I hadn't yet. So I just decided when I was teaching this course with the students, I didn't come in as an expert. I, I learned with them. And as I said, it's just the barrier to entry was lower than I expected. So it was easier for me to kind of get caught up. And I just found my math background helped me grasp a lot of these concepts. I would say there's almost no real math in the traditional sense in the book, but almost every topic, you know, machine learning is, is heavily involves mathematics for its foundations, studying how, um, Various things propagate across social networks involves mathematics, a lot of statistics about news consumption. So somehow math is never the central focus in any of these topics, and yet it comes up in every single one that I found is just a useful anchor point to explore all these different interactions. 
So you don't necessarily split the book into two halves, but yet there's kind of a symmetry to some extent. You 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 cover maybe slightly more than half uh, on on problems and issues in the information ecosystem, and then you kind of focus in on some of the ways that technology may offer solutions. Let's talk just specifically about a, about a couple of those areas, um, and maybe a couple that are in the news at the moment today. You know, just before we started this conversation, YouTube announced that it was going to make some changes to the way that it deals with disinformation and uh, its recommendation algorithm. Um, you spend a bit of time on that in the book and talking specifically about, you know, how news and information finds us and how that affects the way that we we see the world. So what can you tell us about this particular focus? Yeah, I, I mean, I found it really compelling and interesting to learn about myself. So it's another example where I just, I found it so interesting I had to share. The, the main impetus here is just, there's so much fear over this mysterious algorithm that just sends us to these videos. And half the people out there, the voices are saying, oh, it's totally innocuous, you know, just sends people to mainstream videos, you know, maybe not so edifying, but it's just entertainment. Then there's all these voices saying it's sending us down to these rabbit holes of extremism and conspiracy theories. And even if you look at the academic literature, it's, it's actually mixed. There's not a consensus. So different, the basic way people have of studying this scientifically is they'll write a, a pretty simple computer program that'll start with what you could call a seed video. So initial start point. And the algorithm will literally just click the top up next recommended video. Then it clicks the one after that, clicks one after that. So you get these little paths, these kind of, you could think of it like a, sort of like a random walk, but it's guided by the algorithm through these videos. So you can go start somewhere and go 10 videos deep and see where you end up. And it's amazingly, the, the outcome of these experiments is very sensitive to the, the starting conditions. So if you start with fairly mainstream videos, a lot of the empirical results are that you, you end up even more mainstream and popular. You end up with popular music and sports, you know, completely harmless. But if you start with political videos, and especially at times like during the, the 2016 and the 2020 elections, then different narratives emerge. You do see this, this uh, funneling people down these extremist pipelines. And it's not that it always does that, but you'll find things like maybe 5% of the videos are completely bonkers conspiracy theories. Well, if someone's inclined to explore this further, it's dangerous to expose them at all. So it's hard to study these things because we're just kind of exploring what the algorithm does. I would say YouTube doesn't even know, you know, they designed the algorithm. They know in, in a sense what it's doing, what reward functions maximizing, what deep learning is involved. That doesn't mean they or anyone knows how it really functions in real life. You know, that's the beauty and mystery of deep learning is that it's extremely effective, but it's also extremely mysterious and opaque. So they've, they've tweaked the algorithm. They've gone through a sequence of steps that I kind of talked about in the book that was public information, mostly like press releases from YouTube. But these experiments I found quite intriguing. What, what can we learn by exploring the, the algorithm? And it's interesting because it's, it's, an exper it's an empirical science, right? Even though computer science is so kind of precise and algorithmic, our only way to understand machine learning things like this is to just do experiments, just like almost like 19th century physics and biology. So one of the main limitations, unfortunately, is all, I think ev without exception, every single study I was able to find uses a, um, an anonymous, like a not logged in user. That means someone who doesn't have any search history, any viewing history, et cetera. 
well, we know your search history, your viewing history, your demographics are important signals in these algorithms. That's not hidden by YouTube or anyone else. It's just, how are you going to, how are you going to see what real people are experiencing on YouTube? The only way I could imagine really doing that is getting a bunch of volunteers to have a, a sort of web tracker to do these experiments to see them. I mean, really kind of like an old school experiment of recruiting volunteers. But I think because the field is kind of computer science heavy, people try to do shortcuts and use these auto clicker programs. Well, you can't have a whole human profile and viewing history and scale up in an automated way like that. So we know what someone with no history will be recommended. But if I try clicking up next videos, or if you try it, we can get very different things. So we just don't know, you know, the entire body of academic research on their algorithm. We don't know how accurate it, or I should say how relevant it is to the real world. One of the hearings in the house this week was around uh, transparency on social media data and how to provide that type of, you know, accessibility to researchers to look at and to try to understand better how these services both, you know, create and help shape our worldview, but also perturb our politics. You go on to talk a, a little bit about how fake news, conspiratorial content has had an impact in some of the elections that we've, we've seen across democracies uh, in the world. Can you maybe just take us on a tour of a couple of those? Yeah, I mean, especially in the YouTube context, the most striking and I would say horrifying one is, has been Brazil in 2018. Uh, Bolsonaro won. It was kind of a surprise. Um, you know, some people think of him as sort of the Brazilian Trump. They're both authoritarian. They both support a lot of conspiracy theories. But with Bolsonaro, it was interesting. It wasn't just him. There was a lot. It was kind of a whole movement of, of these kind of previously fringe figure politicians and lawmakers. Uh, I just say, but they they came from YouTube. Most of them, they were really the YouTube candidates. Some of them were like 21 years old, and they just had a YouTube following. And suddenly, they're propelled to these popular heights that translated into democratic victories in these elections. I think in the U.S., it's been a little harder to disentangle. You know, we have so many different factors like our, you know, New York Times versus Fox News and all our traditional media, people's just innate views. It's, it's complicated to say, no one can really say YouTube recommendation is responsible for X percent of <laughs> Trump votes. You know, we'll, we'll never know that. And that's frustrating, but that's life. But somehow in Brazil, the, the signs are a little bit more clear that there really was an impact. I'm not sure how much quantitatively we can really establish that, but at least qualitatively, there's interviews with the politicians in these parties who said that their funding came from YouTube advertising, their platform came from YouTube. And a lot of them said even they got converted to their, their policies, their very far right wing and authoritarian policies, because the YouTube algorithm sent them to Bolsonaro videos, the recommendation algorithm. And some of them said, one guy said he was just watching like videos teaching him how to play guitar. And suddenly the up next video was Bolsonaro or, or someone you know, talking about these things for 15 minutes and he got sucked in. He even said his education was was YouTube. So somehow in Brazil, it's been almost more of a, a controlled ecosystem where you can really see the impact. In the US, I think there's there has been an impact, but it's, it's more diffuse. It, it's crossed a lot of different platforms. And in fact, that's another issue. Somehow in a lot of the world, I think, you know, Facebook has been in the press a lot and not in flattering ways. They've become kind of the evil giant. It was just a couple of years ago that Google was in everyone's targets. They kept having a lot of misinformation showing up in searches, um, racist tagging of people in photos, all kinds of problems. And, you know, I think there's still a certain level of skepticism about Google, but somehow Facebook right now is, is front and center. I remember, by the way, that YouTube is, is owned by Google. 
in Brazil, somehow YouTube is dominant. It's kind of the platform that everyone relies on. So we could really see what impact it is having. Beyond that, I there's been stories, I'm a little less detailed familiar with them, but there's been stories of Facebook and other companies just they don't have enough moderators who are knowledgeable of all these regions in the world and even the languages. So a lot of their moderation is focused on um, countries that we're more familiar with or maybe have more economic ties to. And it, it's kind of scary to think that we just we can't, you know, Facebook is a global platform. All of these Twitter, all of them are. And it, it's hard to, to moderate them in these far reaches of the world. Do you have a sense of the scale of YouTube's moderation operation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been growing. And that you mentioned that just uh, today it was announced that their, their policies changed. All of these platforms, I think, have been universally stepping towards and moving in one direction, which is increased moderation. So what does that mean? And this, this goes back to your, your observation about the book being sort of two, let's say, very unequal halves. The role algorithm, data-driven algorithms are in kind of spreading, creating, amplifying misinformation and the role in reining it in and, and detecting it and stopping it. I'll be honest, the book is much more about the problematic side and it's a little skimpy on the solutions because that's where we are right now. So the book wrote of this classroom and I decided I really want to just bring people up to date on where we are and not go into speculation about where we're heading or try to conjecture how we're gonna solve this mess. I think those are the questions we need to face and I hope the book brings people up to speed and helps educate them, but I want everyone to come to their own conclusions. So moderation is, it's a big challenge. Um, I don't remember the numbers for YouTube, but Facebook and Google both have, I think it was around 10 or 15,000 uh, human moderators. The way they're used, sometimes there's, I guess there's there's multiple steps involved. Sometimes there's fact checking. So they'll, they'll coordinate with an organization like Snopes or PolitiFact, and these are professional people whose job is to, to fact check. Snopes has a staff of something like 15 or 18 people. It's unbelievably small for the, you know, everyone has heard of Snopes. And yet I was shocked when I heard how small an organization is. So these people are working hard to keep up. So what do algorithms do? What's, what's the role of fact checking? I think Maybe some people like Zuckerberg in 2016 felt like AI was going to completely automate fact-checking. I doubt anyone today has that hope anymore. I think that that dream has vanished. But what we are seeing, and this, I think, honestly, has really improved a lot and is promising, is using AI, especially uh, language processing, to expedite the role of the fact-checkers. So this comes in a couple places. One is, you know how many claims and posts on social media are just variations of the same fundamental thing, true or, or false. So a, lo a lot of the AI application is to just kind of cluster these claims, to have the algorithm say, okay, these thousands of posts that are floating around here, they're all basically the same claim that Snopes has already debunked. So let's just point it to that. That way the humans don't have to do each individual one, they just do once, and then the algorithm identifies all the instances of it. So it's, it's expediting. The algorithm needs the humans. It's not going to replace them, but it's, it's making their job a little easier. The scale of the problem is immense. You know, we absolutely need these things. This is one argument that I, I think some people kind of view algorithms as evil and messing up our society because there's all these problems that we hear about. But I think we just have to admit how much worse would it be if we didn't have the positive uses of them? You know, there's, there's a lot of uproar when we find some fake news result that was highly ranked in, in Google or spreading on Facebook. But I just read, I think it was a few years ago, Twitter 
was blocking something like 3 million suspicious accounts every week. So imagine how messed up our world would be if Twitter wasn't using AI to automatically detect and block these, if YouTube wasn't using these fact-checking things. So going back to the two methods, one is, is expediting but not replacing fact-checking. The other is just overall content moderation. Here, the, the role that machine learning plays is to scale up the operation. So I mentioned these figures like 10,000 or 15,000 human moderators. What they do for both Google and Facebook, so presumably YouTube as well, these humans have instructions on what they should do as far as you know, labeling content as good or bad or ranking searches you know, to do their, their evaluation job. They can only go through, even with 10,000 people, you can only go through so many web pages, so many searches, so many YouTube videos. There's no way that that's, they're going to human check everything. So what they do is they use these humans to label the data and use that as training data for machine lear learning algorithms that then extrapolate. So the algorithm, in other words, learns from the human and tries to then do its job more broadly. You know, it's not perfect because it depends very much on the region, the language the trainers are using. And there's a delay. You know, if, if one of these companies wants to suddenly change a policy, it's not so easy to immediately do that because the training data is historic. You know, it takes time to update it. So with something like the, the recent change today to YouTube, they previously were banning anti-vaccine content specific to COVID, and they've broadened it to ban anti-vaccine content more broadly. The justification, they said, is they realized that some general anti-vax content surprisingly is inspiring people to be anti-COVID vax. <laughs> you know, who would have saw that coming? So they're, they inch along all these companies. They're slowly ramp up their moderation, make things tighter. But the, the fundamental, I mean, there's the technological challenges involved that I'm mentioning, scaling up, language processing is hard, live videos, you know, how are you ever going to fact check things when it's Facebook live streaming or Twitter spaces? That's, you know, almost hopeless, not quite, but almost. So there's the, the technological challenge that we are making progress. I would say if you look at Google searches in 2016, if you look at YouTube and Facebook, things are bad now, but they were so much worse then. And that's largely because the companies have tightened their policies. They don't allow as much. And the technology's improved, especially one of the, the biggest successes of deep learning has been uh, image and text processing. And that stuff absolutely is used effectively. But in addition to the technological challenges, there's a fundamental, well, there's a market challenge, which is these companies don't really have such a financial incentive to make things better for, most, for the most part. You know, unless there's like anti-monopoly regulations or direct threats or boycotts by advertisers, unless there's that kind of external market pressures, they don't have to really respond unless they want to. And there was a recent Wall Street Journal investigation to Facebook that basically established Facebook has known about and tried to explore and research a lot of their problems that their platform is producing. And it's just kind of hasn't been interested and motivated to, to follow up on those. And we have had one of the authors of those stories uh, on to the show in the last couple of weeks. Um, let me push you towards some of the more futuristic things. Um, you, you get on to some of the transformer models, language models, uh, BERT, GPT-3, some of these various uh, things that readers or listeners of the podcast might be a little less familiar with, uh, but that will, to some extent, dominate uh, in future, um, as we imagine a more kind of computationally driven or synthetic media uh, information environment. Um, what should folks be uh, concerned about here? What should they be looking for? Well, a big question is, is kind of how much should we be concerned? So 
let's say two big examples are deep fake videos. There was a BuzzFeed put out a really convincing one of Obama in 2018 that kind of put it on a lot of people's radar. Like this, this stuff's real and scary and it's here. And there's been a question of how impactful has it been? You know, a lot of AI is this sort of endless hype cycle of never, never really coming to fruition. Things like self-driving cars. It's always just around the horizon. So deep fakes with videos is one and text generation, like you mentioned, GPT-3 is another. GPT-3, if you don't know, it's basically like the world's biggest autocomplete. You're just like on your phone when you're typing, it'll suggest the next words. GPT-3 does exactly that. You provided a block of text or a single sentence, and it'll just autocomplete more and more words, as many as you want. But it's trained on a huge database. All of Wikipedia, for instance, the entirety of Wikipedia takes up half a percent of its training data. So it's read a lot, let's say. And it's not memorizing this text. It's using the text to extract statistical signals that helps it generate. So with both deepfakes and GPT-3, there's concern, right? With, with deepfakes, we won't know what's true and what's not. What we've seen since, let's say, 2018, so over about three years, is that more often than someone maliciously creating a deepfake, you know, showing a political candidate saying something that they didn't really and getting them in trouble, more often the problem we've had is, is kind of the opposite, that real videos are now questioned. People can take any video, no matter how convincing it is, and say that's a deepfake, and a number of people are going to believe it. So just the existence of the technology makes it a lot harder to know what's real and not, even if there aren't actually that many of these floating around in, in political spheres. With GPT-3, the, the risk that a lot of people are worried about is, is fake news, that this can just produce these articles really quickly. The technology is there, it absolutely can, but there's kind of economic and psychological factors that tell you how worried you should be. It turns out most fake news is not very well written. It's pretty cheap and poor and low quality. You could just hire anyone to crank that stuff out by hand. It's not that fake news producers will profit tremendously by just producing more content. You know, they're, they're challenges to produce content that goes viral. So, so just I don't to, really, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, just to push you on this point, there's, you know, um, basically right now we're still at a stage where, you know, to train a model and, and run it and generate content is still computationally expensive. Well, you have to be careful. Well, that's a good good point. To train it, the thing what makes deep GPT three so scary is they trained it once, and it costs like ten million dollars of computational resources to train it and all this data. Once it's trained, it's ready to go. You can just use it and produce, and that happens very quickly, very cheaply. They GPT three is run by OpenAI. They decided to, despite their name, not keep it open, so they keep it proprietary, and they let people access it. So you can kind of send your prompts, and you pay you know, some fee per word or something like that, and they'll send you back the autocompletes. So they're, they're controlling how much you can do this and, and how expensive it is. But at that point, you know, the, the main computational cost has already been incurred and it's, it's pretty efficient in, in that regard using it. But we're still in the, in the domain of uh, either, you know, motivated, well-capitalized, you know, corporate actors or, or maybe, you know, possibly criminal syndicate actors, if you want to kind of go dark uh, or nation states, we're not, we're not quite in the realm of, you know, on a laptop, I can spin up an instance of GPT-3 and put it to work for me. Well, I mean, you won't be running it on your computer, but you can certainly access it. You know, it's like an API. You can just like, you can go to Google and access their enormous databases of search. You can, you can do this from your computer. 
But it, it brings up an interesting question, which is how valuable is that to these malicious actors? We're still figuring that out. So I don't want to claim to know the answer. But my intuition is that as far as fake news, like writing tighter articles, it's not going to shift the balance that much. People have been writing garbage and making a lot of money by spreading it for a while. You don't need a computer system to crank out tons of these articles. You can just do that by hand. I could write a whole article. My you know, nephew, who's 10 years old, could write a whole article that, you know, crappy fake news article that pr- spreads and goes viral. So I don't think it's going to shift the balance because it makes something that's so cheap, maybe a little bit cheaper, but that's not going to change things. Where I think a bigger concern is, is bot accounts on social media. So, you know, trolls, these uh, disinformation campaigns, there you have a whole bunch of accounts that you want to kind of coordinate and try to manipulate the social media ecosystem. So what do you do? Well, before these fancy language models, you, you can have them treating articles, posting things, sharing, but they're kind of limited. They're just kind of resharing things that are out there. They're not generating linguistic comments for the most part. But with this software, that, that I think does become a risk. And there was an example someone found on Reddit, a Reddit user that was amazingly prolific commenting on all these things. It didn't seem to have any real malicious intent, but it's just shocking. And it turned out that user was GPT-3. Someone was running it. So once we have bot accounts that are writing human-like text, you know, replies and comments and everything else, I think it's going to make it a lot harder to te- detect the bot accounts. So I'm, I'm more worried about GPT running bot accounts, or at least the text part of that, than creating fake news. Because again, anyone can create fake news. So I want to kind of just maybe step back and, you know, thinking, and this book is, a, is an excellent resource, especially for anyone that wants to just have a compendium of these problems and also some of the various solutions that have been put forward. Um, it's very good at kind of collecting all of the, the different toolkits and things that have been, have been developed. But just sort of stepping back, you know, earlier you said, you know, we'd be better off, we're better off now than we would have been. Uh, had AI not come along or had machine learning not come along to give us the tools to deal with this volume of, of issue. I wonder sometimes, is it not uh, the case that what we're dealing with is the externalities of the early introduction of machine learning or um, artificial intelligence technologies, if you, uh, you want to kind of lump a set of technologies into that, under that phrase, whatever it means. Is there any real reason to believe, you know, what folks like Mark Zuckerberg keeps saying, which is that ultimately technology will solve these things uh, or that the AI will get so good that it'll, it'll help us to get these things under control? I mean, should we really have faith that the very technologies that are spawning all these problems and, and seem to be so little understood by the companies that are commercializing them, should we have faith that, you know, they'll be able to kind of capitalize the solutions? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I'd, I'd say that's the, the million dollar question that we don't know. I, I should say I might have been uh, misspoken a little or at least been a little glib if I tried to say that, that we're better off having AI than not in an entirety. More what I meant, which I might not have said well, is that let's assume we have social media, we have these technologies. I think it's just kind of underplayed and undervalued how much AI is already doing to help rein things in. So I guess, you know, you're absolutely right. The technology, well, I mean, one way to put it is there are a lot of problems. In fact, this is a good point. I'm glad you're bringing this up. There are a lot of problems with AI amplifying things. You know, Facebook maximizes engagement, 
engagement is correlated with extremist things, emotional things, which is correlated with fake news. So the, the logical conclusion there is that Facebook is kind of maximizing fake news because that's what people click. That's what sells. You know, in that sense, it's not so different than what people call the yellow press in the, the 19th century. People would buy tabloids, you know, terrible, trashy newspapers because it was enticing. So it sold then and it sold now. The only difference is the scale that things are, are massively accelerated. But I find a little bit in the, the mainstream press, sometimes it's a little overemphasized the role algorithms are playing. Like I remember reading a story that seemed reasonable and I, I was going to use it for a source in my book. And after I read it, I thought, you know, that didn't quite convince me. And what it was trying to say was that Facebook and its algorithms are, are funneling people into extremism. And it talked about some people who were trying to develop a social media following and they would post various content. They had nothing basically until they started to do very like extreme pro-Trump type of stuff. And suddenly they had a lot of followers, but they gave some concrete examples. Like people would go to Trump's account, like his social, his uh, Facebook profile, and they would comment there and kind of extract followers. And it occurred to me, that's technical in the sense of, it's using technology in the sense of social media, but that's not an algorithmic issue. That's like going to a town hall where a bunch of people are going to be like-minded and shouting things out and getting followers. That's not that algorithm that machine learning is sending people. That's you literally just went to a guy who has, you know, however many millions of followers and you tried to talk to them and get some attention. So I think that's kind of what I, I had in mind that let's not talk about what life would be like with or without social media. Cause that's a foregone <laughs> conclusion. We have social media. Within that, there is a lot of problems. Some of them are absolutely caused by AI. Some of them are not, and some are in between. They're kind of pre-existing, but they're amplified by AI. I, but I feel like at the end of the day, social media, even without the AI aspect, just kind of platforms where people can go on the internet and connect, it's just bringing so many people together, and it's just a kind of Wild West chaos that we would have so many of these problems even if we didn't have the, the AI amplification. We just have to accept that this is a difficult terrain to, to work in. And one of the tools, one of the main tools we have for dealing with these large, you know, unruly terrains is artificial intelligence. So it is something we just have to use. And I do think there's been a lot of signs of, of significant improvement. 2016 seemed like it was kind of the, the low point, you know, Trump's surprising victory. And we realized that social media and Google and all these were, were almost certainly playing a role. And it was kind of a wake up call that mo mobilized a lot of political and public pressure and some financial pressure and the companies responded. As I said, they tightened their, pol their policies, you know, that's a human decision, but they also improved their algorithms. And like you mentioned BERT, so Google developed BERT, which is a way of basically turning words into numbers to make them easier to process. So I think we just have to recognize that these problems are just gonna be there. You know, we can't, we're never gonna get rid of them and we'll always, it was inevitable in a sense. This is just the scale of the world that's connected through the internet. Now that these problems are there, we have to try to stop using AI in such a harmful way. And I think that's what a lot of the discussion's about, seeing how Facebook did this research and found these harms and knowingly suppressed it. That's really bad. We need to find economic incentives, you know, market incentives to try to get Facebook to stop doing that or legal things, you know, antitrust, um, regulation, whatever we can. So we have to work on that. But in parallel, we have to use a, utilize AI as the tool that it is as effectively as we can. So you asked a really important question of, 
is it going to be our, our savior? Is it going to get us out of this mess? I don't know. I doubt it will. But is it going to be a useful tool that'll limit the problem it already has? And absolutely. So I would say at the end of the day, it's an arms race. No one's going to win, but the negative forces that AI unleashes and that are using AI will, will be there. They'll be relentless. So we have to you know, diligently work to use AI as much as we can to, to counterbalance it. So it's not so much a good or bad, it's just keeping up with this challenge. How far will it go? You know, is it really, will we get so good at this technology? I don't think so. I, I think that the end state is really an arms race. So all the examples you mentioned, like GPT-3, we're going to get better at producing text using AI. We're going to get better at detecting it, fake, you know, auto-generated text. Same with deepfakes. We'll get better at producing more convincing ones. We'll get better at detecting them using AI. So it's, it, I don't see an end in sight. I just see a, a constant battle that we just have to accept the role that algorithms are playing in society and, and try to rein them in and, and funnel resources to making to helping them develop the good, try to be aware of and mitigate the bad and find some way, and this is what seems to be really missing, to motivate these companies, the tech giants, to, to work much harder. To go back to your, your question of, you know, can we trust Zuckerberg as far as that technology will, you know, prevail. In a way, the fact that we're seeing that Facebook, when it wants to, can actually do a lot. Like in the 2020 election, things were going crazy. And with the, the January 6th, with capital insurrection and everything, things were kind of blowing up and going crazy. And Zuckerberg kind of acquiesced and said, okay, let's, let's tone down political content. Let's, they basically added a lot of traction. They, they turned down the volume on their amplification algorithms it didn't fix everything completely, but it helped a lot. So we've even seen in, in temporal instances like that in geographic instances that these companies can do a lot when they want. Not everything, it's not gonna be perfect, but they can do a lot, but they don't have that motivation to do so all the time because they make more money by not by letting the problem run rampant. So they, well, they know better than we do what the, the technology can do. We just have to get them to use it. Enormous power. Uh, concentrated yeah. in a few hands, um, but yeah, and that that's a big issue too. Is it is very concentrated. It's that's that's scary. Well, it probably means there'll be a sequel to this book in the near future. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> for better or worse. I, I, hopefully, the next book will will shift the balance. It'll be more about solutions than the problems. But you know, the well, the main thing I took away at the end of writing it, because I'll be honest, I'm not an I didn't come in as an expert in this. I came in as a mathematician. I learned it with my students. I learned it while, while writing the book, while researching it. The main thing I came away is that so much has really changed over the last four years from 2016, I guess the last five years. And a lot of our mindset hasn't kind of adapted. So there are a ton of problems. Things are really bad. There's all these dynamics. Many things have not changed, but we do have to open our eyes and see that we're not where we were in 2016. Things are, are moving in different directions exactly what they are and how far, you know, that, that's difficult to say. But, you know, like you said, with, with content moderation, look at YouTube's policies now versus in 2016. And it, I think we've just moved a lot in the right direction. Well, that is an optimistic place to end. And before I open my browser and, and read some news event that has given us a new low to anchor ourselves <laughs> to, uh, I'll probably just uh, stop there and say thank you very much, Noah. Well, thanks for your time. I really enjoyed this. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send me your feedback 
You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.